This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, cricket lovers unite in India, where the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is getting a hero's welcome. We'll look at the issues on his tour agenda, including trade, defence and security. Also, reports Australia will get two types of submarines under the AUKUS deal, including US-built nuclear-powered boats, next decade. The current production line for the Virginia-class nuclear submarine is essentially behind schedule providing those submarines to the US Navy, let alone providing additional submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. And a black sovereignty campaigner fails in a bid to evade Australian law. We'll explore what happens when claims of sovereignty clash with the courts. Well, first tonight, Anthony Albanese's tour of India is underway, with the Prime Minister attending the opening day of the fourth cricket test in Ahmedabad with his Indian counterpart, Narendra Modi. From there, the PM heads to Mumbai and then India's capital, New Delhi, for formal meetings with Mr Modi. Boosting trade and defence ties between the two countries are expected to be top priorities for the leaders. Neil Whitehead has more. Anthony Albanese kicked off his trip to India with a triumphant lap of Ahmedabad's new cricket pitch. Um, Just the two Prime Ministers there doing a lap of honour as we get set. He joined his counterpart, Narendra Modi, on a giant golden float crowned with massive bats and stumps. What sort of vessel is that, BJ? (laughs) A hotted up golf buggy. (laughs) Bit better than the Potemobile. I don't know what it is. After they inched around the stadium, waving to crowds, a slightly quicker sport, cricket, was allowed to start. It is a heads team, you won the toss, and you're going to... We're going to have a bat. Off the pitch, the two countries are batting closer together than ever before. And this is about win-win. Win for Australia, win for India, closer economic relations with what is the fifth largest economy in the world, but growing even further in the future. Trade between India and Australia is picking up, reaching $34.3 billion in 2021, up from $13.6 billion in 2007. But that's not all that's bringing the two sides closer. Australia is now home to over 700,000 Indian migrants, making its diaspora our second biggest. And defence ties are also growing with more joint training. And talking about our security in the Indo-Pacific Uh, is an important focus of uh, our relationship. Security in the Indo-Pacific means China. Shared concerns about its aggression are pushing India and Australia closer. Ian Hall is acting director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. So Australia and India have developed quite a close partnership and they've done it really quickly over the last 15 years or so. A lot of that is to do with shared concerns about China and about China's behaviour in the region. And so the initial conversations were about, well, how best we might collaborate together in order to manage that behaviour. Since China imposed trade restrictions on $24 billion of Australian exports in 2020, businesses have been looking to diversify into other markets. So what's India's potential? So there's no doubt that India is a challenging market. We also don't have the same complementarities, if you like, as we do with China and in the past with Korea and Japan. So we we can't sell lots of 
iron ore, for example, to, to India. India doesn't, doesn't have the demand for that. But at the same time, India's economy is growing really fast. It's the fifth largest economy in the world right now. This year, it will be the fastest growing economy, major economy in the world, and it probably will be for the next couple of years. So there's just immense opportunity just from the sheer size and weight of the Indian economy. Last year, the two countries signed an interim free trade deal aimed to roughly double trade flows. The Prime Minister is looking to build on that deal in this trip. But the tour also comes with difficult questions for the Albanese government. Under the Modi government, we've seen an escalating crackdown on civil society and media freedom in India. Elaine Pearson is director of Human Rights Watch's Asia division. So, you know, even the offices of the BBC were raided following the BBC's airing of a documentary critical of Modi. But we've also seen the way in which the Modi government has adopted discriminatory laws and policies against religious minorities. We've seen a surge of mob violence. And many of these attacks, uh, the perpetrators, are never held to account. The Albanese government has refused to be drawn on India's human rights record, preferring a policy of quiet diplomacy. Certainly the Albanese government should be raising human rights concerns with the Indian government. I think it's a mistake to gloss over these issues because, you know, the glossing over those of these issues simply makes the situation worse for people in India. But should Australia be prioritising its economic and defence interests over values? Griffith University's Ian Hall says it can do both. And I have no doubt that both the Prime Minister and also other officials, they'll be raising all of those issues with their Indian counterparts. There isn't an easy fix to this. Uh, and India is very sensitive to criticism. But nevertheless, you know, the, the broader and the more substantial the relationship we have, the more influence I think we're going to have uh, in New Delhi. Griffith University's Ian Hall, Nell Whitehead, with that report. Well, after holding meetings with business people from Australia and India, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, will be visiting India's flagship aircraft carrier this afternoon. Our South Asia correspondent, Avani Dias, is covering the tour and joins us now from Ahmedabad. Avani, first off, what was it like in the cricket stadium when the Prime Minister enjoyed a, a lap of honour alongside India's Narendra Modi? Oh, it was like nothing you would ever see in Australia. Even coming into the stadium, Mr Albanese's face is everywhere. He's on these huge banners that are metres high along the stadium. Every few metres, there are billboards with Anthony Albanese and Narendra Modi's face on them. And then every time Mr Modi's face came on the screen, the crowd went absolutely wild. And you compare that to any time a prime minister of any political affiliation turns up at the footy in Australia and most of the crowd ends up booing. It's a real contrast here in India. It's like these people are total celebrities. Uh, Mr Modi and Mr Albanese did a lap of honour on a chariot around the stadium uh, and then they watched some performances while sitting down. They then gave caps to the different captains of the different teams. Uh, But what we are seeing here is a really carefully orchestrated and very planned event. This is in the home state of Mr Modi in Gujarat and everyone we've spoken to here, spectators, are big fans of his. So he knew that coming here he was going to get a really positive reception and that's the show that was put on for Mr Albanese today. Sounds like a very different experience for an Australian politician. What concrete developments, though, if any, are are you expecting to come from the Prime Minister's visit to India? 
Well, as you said, Mr Albanese, following this cricket match, is going to Mumbai where he will go on board the INS Vikrant, which was the first Navy aircraft carrier to be built in India. And this is really significant because Mr Albanese is the first foreign leader to be invited and go on board this ship. It's a major sign of India's willingness to cooperate on defence terms. And we understand that Mr Albanese will make an announcement on further defence exercises and cooperations going forward between India and Australia. Following that, Mr Albanese will head to New Delhi and that's going to be the trade section of this trip. We know that India and Australia have just recently signed an agreement that's very close to a free trade agreement, but there are a few uh, items that are missing on that agreement which are politically sensitive. So no doubt Mr Albanese will be trying to push for more items uh, to be included on that agreement in the coming days. Our earlier story highlighted concerns of Human Rights Watch about crackdowns on civil society and media freedom in India. How careful do you think Prime Minister Albanese will have to be in broaching those sort of topics with his Indian counterpart? And and if he does mention those issues in talks with the Indian Prime Minister, Mr Modi, do you think we'll even hear about it? Look, this is an issue I've been covering for the last year or so, and every time Anthony Albanese gets asked anything to do with this, he really avoids answering this question. But we've seen so many ministers from the Albanese government visiting India this year, and every time I speak to them, we we ask them uh, whether they are advocating to the Indian government on Australia's commitment to human rights and the concerns from critics about the Modi government's crackdown, especially on minorities like the Muslim minority. The closest we've gotten to an answer was last week from Penny Wong, the foreign minister. She was here for the G20. She told us that she did speak to her Indian counterpart, Dr. S. Jai Shankar, and did advocate to him about Australia's position on human rights. So we know that this issue will be broached. But for Mr. Albanese, this is going to be a really tricky area to navigate because the India-Australia relationship has come so far in the last decade or so. If you look back to even 15 years ago, the the relationship between these two countries was at an all-time low. And now we're seeing such major steps forward. So Mr Albanese, as the Labor leader of a new party, will not want to be jeopardising that in any way in his first visit here as Prime Minister. And so he will be skirting around the issue, but we will be asking him further questions on this in the coming days. Our South Asia correspondent, Avani Dias. There are reports today that the Australian government has made its long-awaited decision on who'll supply us with nuclear-powered submarines under the AUKUS agreement with the US and UK. The Reuters news agency says anonymous American officials have confirmed Australia will buy up to five Virginia-class submarines from the US and later buy a fleet of subs based on a British design. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese was asked about the reports in India today. Well, I'll be making uh, further comments uh, about specific proposals at, at the appropriate time, but I can confirm that on Monday uh, there will be a meeting of the AUKUS partners between myself, uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Sunak. In addition, in the United States, I will be having bilateral meetings with President Biden and Prime Minister Sunak. I look forward uh, to announcing those details. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, speaking in India. Dr Malcolm Davis is a senior analyst in defence strategy and capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. 
in order to get Virginia-class submarines from the US, uh, we're going to need to contribute towards establishing a new production line in the United States. The current production line for the Virginia-class uh, nuclear submarine uh, is essentially behind schedule providing those submarines to the US Navy, let alone providing additional submarines uh, for the Royal Australian Navy. And secondly, uh, there are no free operational nuclear submarines in the US fleet that they could sell us. So we'd need to contribute somehow towards ad uh, providing additional production capability. Secondly, in terms of the, uh, the, the follow-on British uh, option, uh, I think that that's a logical approach in terms of how we ultimately build up our submarine capabilities. But the risk is, of course, that then we have three different types of submarines. We have the Collins-class diesel electrics, which will be on their last legs. We have the Virginia-class boats, which if we're buying them in the 2030s, we'd want to hang on to for at least another 20 or 30 years. And then we would have the new um, the British uh, boats that have an American combat system. Uh, so we'd be operating three different types of, of submarine, which would be very challenging from a logistics and sustainment perspective. If, and we certainly hope it doesn't happen, but if China were to invade Taiwan and Australia became involved in the, the conflict, what position is Australia going to be in in terms of its submarine capacity? Would our existing Collins-class submarines play a role? Uh, certainly they would. Uh, we would not have uh, the nuclear-powered submarines at that point. You know, most um, assessments on Chinese intentions are suggesting that it's the second half of this decade where the greatest period of risk lies. 2027, for example, is the, is the year that Xi Jinping has ordered the PLA to be ready to take Taiwan. Uh, it's also the 100th anniversary of the PLA, and it's the uh, year where the next National Party Congress will be held, where Xi has to demonstrate a series of deliverables, including in relation to Taiwan. So that period from 26 to 27 is when we're looking at in terms of the greatest period of risk. Uh, and at that point, all we will have will be the Collins-class diesel-electric submarines, which are getting very old. Now, there's some suggestion that uh, they will be upgraded with what's known as life-of-type extension. Um, but even with that, that will take a number of the submarines out of service as that's done, and it still doesn't leave them with uh, a capability that could match, for example, the very latest Chinese uh, nuclear-powered submarine, such as the Type 09V SWE class, which is comparable to the Virginia class. What do you say to people who are wondering what benefits these nuclear-powered submarines offer? Why is it so important to have them? Nuclear-powered submarines are the apex predator of the sea. Uh, they give us the ability to deploy a submarine at very long range at very high speed and to be able to stay on station undetected for months if necessary. Uh, unlike a conventional submarine which needs to surface almost every other day to snort in order to recharge its diesel engines, nuclear submarines can stay underwater undetected. Uh, the nuclear reactor gives it loads of power to be operate sensors and systems uh, and as I said, it's that endurance on station which is really critical, as well as speed and manoeuvrability that, that these electric submarines simply don't have. Dr Davis, how do you think our neighbours in the Asia-Pacific region will react to Australia acquiring the nuclear-powered submarines if these reports are correct, first from the US and then based on the, the British design? 
Look, the key point to to make clear here is that these are nuclear-powered submarines. They are not not nuclear-armed submarines, okay? So we're not getting nuclear weapons. We are not violating um, uh, international obligations uh, towards the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And suggestions from China that we are are simply false. Uh, and I think that um, what we need to do is make clear to our partners in ASEAN uh, that you know, these submarines enhance their security because they act to they contribute towards deterrence of China uh, in terms of it using its military capabilities in the region. Dr. Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, we head to a Melbourne restaurant to meet a chef pushing the concept of circular economies to the extreme. Panettone miso is just like one of the thing, like experiment when we started. Panettone miso. And I started like just making miso out of it. It's just weird. And what does it taste like? It tastes... uh, Almost like umami Christmas. (laughs) To Victorian politics now and an extraordinary letter written by the state's former anti-corruption commissioner has accused the Andrews Labor government of trying to undermine the integrity watchdog in retaliation for various investigations. The letter, tabled in Victoria's parliament, claims the parliamentary committee with oversight of the anti-corruption commission engaged in partisan politics and interference. Bridget Fitzgerald has more. It's a scathing, detailed accusation. It's an extraordinary letter. Victoria's Shadow Attorney-General, Michael O'Brien. In a letter, the former head of Victoria's anti-corruption watchdog, Robert Redlick, makes serious accusations of interference by a Labor-led parliamentary committee which has oversight of IBAC, Victoria's independent, broad-based anti-corruption commission. In all my time in politics, I have not seen anything like it. You have the the outgoing head of IBAC, the anti-corruption watchdog in this state, a, a respected former Supreme Court judge, and he's effectively accused the government of engaging in revenge payback attacks on him and his organisation. The Parliamentary Integrity and Oversight Committee oversees Victoria's integrity agencies, including IBAC. Robert Redlick's letter, sent to the Speaker of the Lower House and Upper House President in December, accuses the committee of instructing an independent auditor to find dirt on IBAC. It alleges the committee leaked private correspondence to the media and says the committee was intent on casting IBAC in a negative light. The letter which was tabled in Parliament today, suggests such actions taken by the committee were fuelled by political reasons, retaliation to the work undertaken by IBAC. Michael O'Brien again. And this was a political hit job. Premier Daniel Andrews says he hasn't seen the letter and any questions about the operation of the Integrity and Oversight Committee is a matter for its members. Uh, As to having a debate with the former head of that agency, I'm not interested in doing that and I won't do it. I don't believe that's appropriate. Uh, but I absolutely reject any suggestion by him or anybody else uh, that the government does not behave appropriately. The government does behave appropriately. And there are no findings to the contrary. Uh, but again, I haven't seen the letter, so I'm, not, I'm even less interested in having a debate with someone about correspondence they've supposedly written that I haven't even seen. 
if the presiding officers did not pass this information on to the Premier, then uh, we have a serious problem of transparency across the board. Lynn Allison is a former Senator for Victoria, former head of the Australian Democrats and chair of the Accountability Roundtable, an organisation aimed at improving standards of accountability and transparency in government. How concerning is it that the outgoing IBAC commissioner felt, let's say at the very least, undermined by the Integrity and Oversight Committee? Well, it's very concerning. Um, Investigating government corruption is an intensely political uh, activity, but interference in the business of the Commission, if that's what's happened, uh, shouldn't be tolerated. Robert Redlick's letter says there should be a provision that precludes the party in government from making up a majority of the Integrity and Oversight Committee. Accountability expert Dr Colleen Lewis from ANU's Australian Studies Institute says the committee must be overhauled. It is definitely an alarm bell that is going off and it has to be rung a lot louder. We just cannot put up with this kind of attitude to very important institutions that are there so that the government is held accountable. Premier Daniel Andrews says there are no plans to change the current makeup of the committee. The ABC's contacted former committee members for comment. Bridget Fitzgerald reporting. In the Northern Territory, the Supreme Court has dismissed an appeal by a black sovereignty campaigner who argued he couldn't be prosecuted for allegedly assaulting a police officer because Australian law doesn't apply to him. David Cole has been trying to prove for years that Australia's white institutions are illegitimate because Indigenous peoples never ceded ownership of the land. Jane Barden reports. You all stand here under the protection of sovereign tribal law. Nuracha Wambaya man David Cole has been campaigning for black sovereignty rights for years. He and colleagues have tried to serve the anti-parliament, courts and police with notices telling them they're illegitimate institutions which should be wound up because they have no jurisdiction to operate on Aboriginal land that was never ceded. His sovereignty protests and involvement in anti-vaccination rallies have brought him into confrontation with police numerous times, including on this occasion in 2021. My evidence is my word. As I am standing here in front of you, a lawman, I'm a tribal lawman. He tried to argue in the Supreme Court charges of assaulting a police officer and taking part in a riot he's due to face later this month are invalid. Mr Cole argued the laws of the Commonwealth and the NT have no application to him as a sovereign tribal man. The Supreme Court has dismissed that appeal, deciding Indigenous Australians are subject to state and Commonwealth laws. David Cole says he intends to appeal to the High Court. Could you be accused of trying to say, really, those laws don't apply to you, to not have the hand of the law on you for things that maybe a white Australian would be prosecuted for? I'm not using the sovereign argument to try and challenge that. I'm challenging their jurisdiction, absolutely. Um, But I've been challenging their jurisdiction uh, since 2016 in the courts. Do you feel that the black sovereignty movement is starting to gain more traction? Oh, without doubt. You know, there are growing numbers of people in both the political arena and, and, and across the country that are 
speaking sovereignty. You know, Lydia Thorpe deciding, well, I've got to go and stand with this truth because maybe it's the only way we're going to get any remedy. One of the particular sovereignty movements is the Sovereign Citizens Movement. Do you align yourselves with that movement? Absolutely not. Sovereign citizens groups, including non-Indigenous people, are established in Australia and the United States. Dr Josh Roos from Deakin University, who's researched these groups, says there's political danger for the black sovereignty movement in becoming conflated with groups promoting violent resistance and avoiding the rule of law. Their jobs are made a little bit tougher because during the Canberra protests, for example, there was certainly um, an attempt to appropriate the narrative of sovereignty by um, sovereign citizens and, and other freedom protest movement activists. For years, the black sovereignty movement has been marginalised in Australia. Is there any sense that this could get political traction in Australia now? Many have long argued for a more um, hardline stance on Aboriginal rights. It's probably important to remember that every major religion and, and beliefs in, in society has come from what was once a radical and malign movement. So Christianity I and mean, Jesus was considered a radical at the time. Um, when we're talking about feminism, which uh, was, again, considered a radical movement and extremist movement, it was dangerous. But as they achieve momentum and achieve success, very often they do end up becoming quite influential and shaping society around them. Veteran Indigenous rights campaigner and former chairman of the Central Land Council, Maury Ryan Jabada, has been trying to advance black sovereignty for decades. He says there have been some gains, including anti-Aboriginal land rights laws. But he's pessimistic his aspirations will be realised. And we've missed out on a lot, particularly the wealth of this country, because there's a lot of people who are living in, in poverty. You know, Australia doesn't want to give away anything. And what's happened is you've been taking and taking and taking, and we're getting fed up with it. Maury Ryan Japita talking to Jane Barden. Well, here's a question for you. Have you ever thought of turning an old loaf of bread into miso paste? I suspect the answer is no, but perhaps you've considered that the wine bottle you're throwing away could one day be an important building material. Last month, the Albanese government set up an expert working group to help Australia's economy become more circular by 2030. That basically means more reuse and recycling. This report from Oliver Gordon. At a lab in Melbourne's RMIT University, engineering professor Dylan Robert is masked up, scooping a grey powder. So the one I just taken out from this container is recycled glass fines. And so you're telling me that this grey material, this glass fine, is actually the glassware that Australians throw out? Yes. So these are the, the glass coming from those uh, of waste, glass waste. But as I said, you know, they are, they are treated, uh, washed, and then you know, grinded to certain size before we use in our product. Professor Robert is a proponent of the circular economy. He's part of a team that has created cladding for the outside of buildings made up of 83% recycled glass. So in Australia itself, 1.1 million tonnes of glass waste generates every year. And it's about 600,000 tonnes being recycled for other products, but 400,000 plus 
blast waste going to landfill. So that's a significant amount per year. The product has been patented and has passed stringent fire safety tests. Professor Robert hopes it'll be on the market by 2025. In terms of going to the commercial scale, uh, we believe that within the next one to two years, uh, we are going to go to the market. Circular initiatives don't have to be confined to labs in universities, though, as I find out in Melbourne restaurant Parks, spelt P-A-R-C-S. Uh, Dennis Young, chef slash owner, Parks, yeah. Why is this restaurant called Parks? It was the whole idea of uh, scrap spelled backwards. The reason is because of that, that we technically take um, like scraps from restaurants and then um, turn it into like, dishes. Using mostly fermentation, Dennis Yong revives food that was otherwise headed for the bin. Oxidised wine is turned to vinegar, carrot peels become treacle, and coffee grounds become shoyu. Dennis is up for pushing the boundaries, like when a bakery owner gave him two Italian Christmas breads that didn't rise. Two years ago, so I think he had like a couple deflated panettone, and he reached out and I was like, oh yeah, I'll grab it. And I started like just making miso out of it. It's just a crazy, um, weird, like sweet. So this is a Italian Christmas bread panettone that you got for free from a Melbourne bakery two years ago and now it is a miso. Yeah, exactly. And what does it taste like? It tastes uh, (laughs) almost like uh, umami Christmas. (laughs) In a circular economy, products are either recycled, remanufactured, or reused after they've served their initial purpose. Initiatives like Dennis Yong's restaurant and Professor Robert's cladding are interesting examples, but the Albanese government has signalled it would like Australia's economy to become much more circular by 2030, recently setting up an expert working group on the matter. Sustainability advocate and former CEO of the Australian Council of Recycling, Peter Schmiegel, says to do that will take serious change. It's really, really cheap in Australia to take things and chuck them in the tip. He hopes policymakers start to create the conditions necessary for circularity to flourish. Until some of these structural issues aren't addressed, it's going to be hard to see how we're going to retrieve more plastic or retrieve more of anything else. So to the minister and to the new expert panel, get practical, look at the economics of things. Sustainability advocate Peter Schmeagel, ending that report from Oliver Gordon. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Hey, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. In Australia, the law says we're meant to work a 38-hour week. In reality, though, many of us do a lot more. But how many extra hours is considered reasonable? That's a question being tested in court in a high-profile case involving the Teal MP, Monique Ryan, and her former staffer, Sally Rugg. Today, an expert in employment law why Australians are working too much. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.